Good morning. If you would, grab a Bible. Let's turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts 13. So we are having our Q&A morning this morning. Uh, this is the last time that I'll be doing Q&A here, and so I am trying to clean out the list. Okay, this is the, the rest of all the lists that I have. There are a couple of questions that just didn't make it. If you feel bad that your question did not get on the list, please just email me and I'll try to answer it. It's probably not personal. It's possible things got lost in the shuffle. It's also possible that I didn't think there would be any benefit from talking about it publicly, which is not personal, but uh, I'll certainly try to give you an answer to that uh, if you have not gotten your question answered about something that you asked me. So uh, for those who are uh, new to this, this is what we typically do. This, this slot, the second Sunday morning, uh, we'll take this time and I'll answer questions that have been submitted to me. You will see some of these questions I brought on myself uh, by things that I said that then you said, what does that mean or what are you talking about or how can we learn more about what you're saying? So, um, but the idea is not that we're going to have a back and forth, but instead I'm going to present some things. And I've got six of these this morning, so I'm not going to delay any more. All right, first of all, uh, can you give some specifics about fasting? So Acts chapter 13 and verse 1, it says, Now there was in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So you have a couple of references there in verse 2. They're worshiping the Lord and fasting in Antioch. And then verse 3, after fasting and praying. So they've been set aside to a special work and fasting and praying is involved in kind of establishing them and getting them ready for that. Uh, last year I preached a sermon called Why Christians Should Fast. And in that sermon, uh, my goal was to establish the idea that Jesus and his disciples, uh, Jesus taught his disciples how to fast in Matthew 6, and that disciples of Jesus, after Jesus was ascended to heaven, did fast. For example, here, New Testament Christians fasted individually and collectively as a congregation. You see that in verse 3 here, and also individually you see that in verse 2. And we often get that reversed. We act as if... We shouldn't fast unless there's some kind of very specific command. And I see it the other way, that Christians should fast uh, unless there are good reasons why we don't. And the goal we talked about of fasting is so that we can grieve for sin or sometimes so that we can ask for God's help. And sometimes a regular fast is just the idea of connecting with God on a regular basis. So we talked through all of that. That was last year. And after that, I had some very... Uh, several requests for some more specific information on what Christian fasting looks like. I think we wanted some specifics. What, do I, what am I supposed to do? And I just didn't ever really get around to kind of following up on that. So here we are. Uh, I'm cleaning out the file. So uh, there is no biblical pattern or regular system for fasting. You don't really, if you, if you look through it in the Bible, you don't really have a lot of information about what a fast consists of. There seems to have been, in the Jewish practice around the time of Jesus, the practice of fasting twice a week uh, that the Pharisee mentions in Luke 18, 12, I fast twice a week, uh, and kind of looking down on the tax collector because he doesn't seem to fast as much. Uh, there are different types of fasting. There is what is sometimes called a normal fast where there is uh, no food, but you do drink liquids. Uh, there are partial fasts where you limit your diet and you fast from certain foods. So think of Daniel 
saying we're only going to eat vegetables, we're not going to eat all the king's delicacies in, in Daniel 1. It's sort of a partial fast. He is fasting, but it's not fasting in the typical way that we think of it. And then there are some absolute fasts where it's uh, no food, no liquid at all. And you can hear that those are, you know, there's some different levels of seriousness in that. So a regular fast, uh, usually in the Jewish practice, is a morning to evening fast. It's a one-day fast, and food is allowed in the evening. There's a lot of examples of that in the, uh, in the Bible. Sometimes they're longer, so there's a seven-day fast at the death of Saul. Moses uh, fasts for 40 days. Uh, Jesus fasts for 40 days. Uh, I am not recommending. The 40-day fast pushes your body to about the limit. Uh, and I think there has to be some caution given. I don't want anybody to say, well, Jacob told me to fast for 40 days, and then, like, you send me the hospital bill. Uh, that can be very serious. I'm not encouraging that, um, not recommending that. And it is, seems to be exceptional even in the Bible uh, for, for, to go that long. So uh, my advice on fasting, especially for those who maybe have never grown up with this practice or maybe you're just deciding, I want to try this for the first time, is just set a time and stick with it. Maybe start with a day. You know, I, I just want to go this day uh, without eating. And uh, when you have that feeling of hunger pang or you start thinking about food uh, and you might notice that you do more thinking about and eating than you realize... Uh, that that might be a time to uh, pray or seek the strength of God. Uh, in the lesson, I stressed that there are certain occasions where to me it seems like fasting is appropriate. Uh, like in Acts 13, they're sending Paul and Barnabas out on a mission to go preach the gospel, really the first missionary journey. And as they do that, they want to connect with God and ask God's blessing. So if we're going to do something, if I'm in a time of repentance... Uh, if we as a congregation are doing something important, we're, we're choosing leadership. Or we're having a, a man who is, we're going to see if this is the guy that we're going to work with to preach. Or we're going to start a new evangelistic effort. Or there's something that we say, you know what, I really want to be sure that God is paying attention to our need. So I'm going to fast and uh, try to connect with God about that. Uh, try to act normal when you fast. That's Jesus' advice, remember. Uh, don't act like, don't go around saying, oh, I'm so hungry all the time. Okay, that, that's just the opposite of what the intention is. Uh, but I, I would mention, you may notice that there is a lot of unconscious eating and drinking, thinking and uh, action. I, I have noticed this when I've tried to fast, which I've dabbled in. I haven't done a lot of it. Um, that, that my body, especially if I'm at home, I just tend to walk toward the pantry. And then I look up, what am I doing? You know, it just, just sort of seems to happen. Uh, I don't hold to a, figure, a regular fast time. I don't do that personally. I, I'm not a fan of rigid structures like that because my schedule is usually everywhere. And uh, usually when I get into a rigid structure thing, then I start to feel guilty if anything goes wrong with the structure and it turns into a whole problem that it shouldn't be. I have also had trouble at times, Sarah will tell you this, uh, when I am marathon training, uh, I get undernourished and I get fussy. And uh, so... You know, just know that about yourself. And maybe there's a problem there where I say, okay, maybe I need to control myself better even in those situations. Uh, but I'm just saying that, that just in the way of advice, you might find yourself being a little testy, and so your spouse may not be as interested in fasting or in you fasting. Um, the Bible also indicates, just one more thing about this, that uh, there are some kinds of fasting that are not just about food. First uh, Corinthians 7, 5 talks about fasting and abstaining from sexual activity altogether. And uh, as a part of fasting. 
So that, that introduces the idea that maybe we can fast not just from food but from other things uh, that are perfectly fine in themselves, but that we say out of a desire to get control of something uh, we, or to connect with God and we know that some things get in the way, we say, I'm not going to do that thing for a certain amount of time. I wonder if uh, that might not be a good idea for us with our cell phones and our technology just to be able to gain some distance from it and some control. One of my favorite things about fasting is that it's a good way to break a cycle where you feel like you're out of control. And uh, sometimes we get into that mode, I do, uh, where we feel like, okay, there's so much going on, I don't feel like I'm connecting with God, I can't slow down, and so it's a hard stop on some of those things. So that would be what I would say about fasting. Second question, uh, is the stock market gambling? Ephesians 4 is where I want to go. Ephesians 4. So Ephesians 4, verse 28, this is the, the verse that we read uh, when we talked about gambling, and I want to read it again just so we get kind of our biblical feet under us. It says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So last year I preached a Q&A that I also brought upon myself about uh, gambling and dancing. And uh, we addressed the idea of whether gambling was a sin. And my conclusion was, no, I don't believe gambling is a sin, but that doesn't mean it's a good idea. I don't think it's a good idea. And one of the main arguments that is made against gambling is that gambling is wrong because it involves risk. And in answering that, I said, well, so does the stock market. That's the reason they say past performance doesn't guarantee future results, you know, because there's risk involved. And I said, you know, everything involves risk and that kind of thing. And that struck someone's curiosity when I mentioned the stock market. They said, well, okay. Since you brought that up, well, is the stock market gambling? Is that the same thing, too? So uh, I believe that arguing that something is wrong because it involves risk is just a poor argument. I just think it's a poor argument. I, I think there are better arguments to talk about this practice than just that. Almost every part of life involves risk, including our jobs. We risked something when we drove on the roads to come here today. There's risk in everything we do. I don't think that's just uh, the only thing that factors into whether we make a moral decision. But... If we want to be very wooden and say that the only way we can make money is by working, which I have heard my preaching brethren say that or something very close to that, then we have to then ask the question, what about investments? Because they're not work, and Ephesians 4.28 says work with your own hands. Okay, so it's certainly not working with my own hands. Uh, buying stock in a company, though, the stock market, or a mutual fund is not, in my opinion, in the same class as playing roulette. Okay, I think those are wildly different things. Now, there are some other types of investments that are out of my league. As I was writing this, I thought, you know what, we have a, a finance professor in the audience and several people who work in this industry, you know, so I'm uh, way out of my league on some of this. And there are uh, investment tools that I'm sure have more risk and, and more reward and more speculation and all of that. I'm just going to say it this way. I don't think investments are the same as gambling, but I do think some of the same questions apply. Questions like that we would ask about anything we do that has to do with money. Am I doing this from greed? Am I a good steward of the things that God has given me? Am I playing? I think it's a good question. Sometimes we talk about playing the markets. Um, playing in the sense that that implies to me, and I think to most of us, that um, it is more of a game than it is a careful 
um, decision about what we're doing with the things God has given us. I have talked to more than one person here whose life was upended by parents who gambled. I just want to say, please remember, whatever you do with your money, that your money decisions affect more than just you. They also affect your spouse. They also affect your kids. They also affect future generations of your family. And they probably are going to affect your brethren uh, either directly or indirectly. All right, third question. Uh, How do we handle adulterous or homosexual marriages? Let's go over to Ephesians 5. We're here in Ephesians 4. Uh, The question is really focused on the idea of the wedding of a homosexual wedding or a wedding that would be a joining of two people that would be adulterous, people that don't have the right to be married to one another. And so being married then is a sinful relationship. Ephesians 5 and verse 3. I'm going to read this. It's kind of an extended section, but I hope you'll read through it with me. Verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. All right, so the question here is when we talk about a wedding, and, you know, we have people that are in our lives that are going to invite us maybe to a wedding. And so what's our response to that if we know that the wedding is in some way associated with sin? Whether that's homosexuality, whether that's adultery, whatever it may be. And... The question is, you know, do I go to the wedding? Do I give gifts? Do I offer congratulations? I mean, at what level do I get involved in that? So our text makes it clear. You could see it in the text, I hope, that our posture toward sinful behavior, especially sinful sexual behavior, is very clear. The question is, how exactly does that play out? So verse 7 says, do not become partners with them. And then verse 11 says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. But then the question comes, well, what does do not become partners with them mean practically? Or what does take no part mean practically? I think that without much controversy, I could say no Christian should be living in or practicing sexual sin. Yet we do live in the world, and we live in a world where people who are not believers are going to practice sexual sin. That's going to be a part of the world that we live in. Paul says, if we were going to keep away from all of those people, we'd have to go out of the world in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. So the tension is, when worldly people do worldly things, what is our response? Where is the line where we pull back and say, I can't have any part with that? I would be taking part in that. Well, I have to say that I believe that the precise applications here are personal. I might be comfortable in a situation where you are not and vice versa. The clear line that I see here is whether or not I am actually sinning. That's a line that there's no getting around. We're not crossing that line. I can't say that's okay in any circumstance. Uh, That is the line where I'm not practicing the thing myself. But there is also a message here about approval or endorsement. 
And I think that's at least part of the implication of take no part. So we have to ask the question, what message are we sending? By our presence, by our congratulations, by our gifts. What does that say to someone who is getting married in a way that we believe is against what God has said? But as soon as I say that, what message are we sending? I think we also have to be aware that messages we send are not always as clear as we like to think that they are. The message that we're sending, the implications of our actions, are not always the same thing as what somebody else interprets our actions to be. Haven't you ever had that happen to you where you didn't mean anything by it, but they took something from it? You know, there was a message sent, but you didn't mean to send it, or you meant to send a different one. And so sometimes when we get into messages and things like that, well, it's a little um, murky ground for me. So a lot of that is cultural, a lot of that is generational, and a lot of that is based on the agenda that we have or that the person who's receiving the message has. They're going to hear what they want to hear, and we're going to send what we want to send, but those don't always match up. So, is there a place to celebrate a happy moment in somebody's life? If someone's not a Christian and they pursue a sinful relationship, are we surprised at that? Are we surprised that non-Christians live in non-Christian ways? Or are we wrong to say that I care about you, but I'm going to show that care in the socially acceptable way? I'm going to come to your wedding, I'm going to give you a gift, I'm going to congratulate you. I can see an argument to be made there. But I have to tell you my personal thoughts. I cannot celebrate something I think is wrong. As soon as I do that, uh, you can tell. If you ever get me in a position where I'm trying to say, you can tell because I'm lying. It looks like a lie coming out of my mouth. I won't be able to do it with a straight face. I'll probably look away and get all embarrassed. I just can't do it. I cannot celebrate something I believe is wrong. I can try to build relationships with people, but that's a line I can't cross. Uh, I cannot celebrate it if I think that what's happening is bad. So since the problem is sexual sin, I don't see any point in distinguishing between the two. I put adulterous and homosexual together. Uh, I don't see any point in saying one is okay and the other is not. I don't get that distinction. I want to say this. One of the criticisms that the gay community levels against Christians is they say there's a double standard among Christians. Christians come down very hard against homosexuality, but then adultery seems to be something that they kind of wink at. You know, that's just a reality that we have to live with. Homosexuality, absolutely wrong. Adultery, yeah, well, pretty much. But we don't treat people who are living in adulterous relationships the way we would treat people who are living in homosexual relationships. And I have a problem with that. Adultery and homosexuality are in the same class biblically. They are sexual sin. And so I don't think that we treat one group different from the other. I think that in the same way, whatever I would decide about one, I would decide about the other. And I would just say for myself, I can't celebrate something that I believe is wrong. I think, though, we should also be aware that weddings are very important moments in people's lives. This is a very big deal to almost everyone. I think all of us would say that. And so there may be a better time to have a really hard conversation about something like that. Uh, instead of saying, okay, they invited me to the wedding, I'm going to let them have it, that may not be the most receptive moment uh, to have that conversation. So that's just my thinking and my advice. 
I can also, though, see the perspective of someone who would say, you know, I could be present because I love them, but I don't approve of this. I just need to be present for that reason. I've talked to uh, parents who have done that with their kids when their kids were married, and they did not approve of the marriage, but they said, I want to be there for my child to show them that I love them. That is their, um, their choice, and I'm not trying to condemn that, but I was asked the question, how would I handle that? And uh, so I've given you my thoughts. All right, um, this question is about the Lord's Supper. And it is, as you can see, several questions. Uh, do we have to give thanks before the Lord's Supper? Specifically, what for? Is Jesus giving thanks for physical bread and Jews, spiritual things, or both? Uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians 10. So this is about how uh, Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper at the Last Supper is kind of related to what we do. And uh, the question first is, do we have to give thanks before we eat the Lord's Supper? So 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16, it says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So Paul is making an argument here. It's about uh, food sacrificed to idols and that when you partake of the idol meat, you know, you're joining in some way, you're participating in all that goes along with the, the religious ceremony. But there is more than just the physical thing, is his argument, uh, that there is a spiritual part together with it. So he talks about, in verse 16, uh, the cup of blessing that we bless. Blessing here is another word for uh, giving thanks to God. Okay, so I bless this in the sense that I thank God for it. And that's, those words are used interchangeably in the texts uh, that have to do with uh, the... Uh, the institution of the Lord's Supper. This is Matthew 26, 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. I don't know that this is well understood. I think sometimes we have talked about just blessing as if it's some, something God is doing special to the bread. In fact, I have heard brethren say this in their uh, personal prayers for food. They will say, Bless this food and um, to the nourishment of our bodies, as if God's going to somehow change the substance of it, which I've always wondered what God does when we pray for donuts, you know, is, is that suddenly going to become nourishing when it's really not? We all know it. But the idea is, is blessing. Blessing is just the idea of, of thanking God. And that's why he says uh, blessing it. And the other parallel readings, uh, like in Luke, say giving thanks. And if you read 1 Corinthians 11, which seems to me to be related to Luke's account, it talks about giving thanks. So blessing or giving thanks... It's just the idea that we're thanking God for these things that he has given us. We know all things come from him. So giving thanks for food just seems to be Jesus' habit. Jesus seems to do this. He does it with the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, there was a traditional rabbinic blessing. Every rabbi would say this blessing that would happen before a meal. And so it could be that Jesus is just saying the blessing as he always does when they meet together and eat. So do we have to give thanks before the Lord's Supper? Well, on one level, I'm not sure we can make this into a law. You know, this must happen before we can take appropriately, as if we've done wrong if we don't say certain things before we take. But on the other hand, look again at verse 16. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, it says, The cup of blessing that we bless. That, that little phrase, that we bless, seems to me to show that the early church took Jesus praising God, thanking God, as an example for the thing they were going to do. This is something we do, that we bless. New Testament Christians took that and ran with it. They did it repeatedly as they followed Jesus' example. So, 
That seems to indicate something to me. I don't know that that can make it a law, but again, if we're going to try to follow the New Testament pattern for what New Testament Christians did as they took the Lord's Supper, here is some of the only information we have about them. So I'm going to say, if I have a choice, and I do, let's go ahead and thank God for the bread and the, the cup so that we can be sure that we are following their example. Specifically, what for? Are, is he giving thanks for physical bread and juice, or is he giving thanks for spiritual things, or both? Well, I'm going to go with both. I'm going to go with all of the above. So the reason I say that is, yes, Jesus seems to give thanks for food and drink, like he always does, but also for the deeper communion and the forgiveness that they symbolize. If you read through that text, he talks about this blood is shed for many for the remission of sins. This, this uh, bread is my body. So he is not just saying, hey, here's some bread. Thank you, Lord, for this bread. It's instead, take this bread. This is unique because it symbolizes more than just the physical bread you're eating. So when we give thanks, I think it is not just that we have bread again, because it's not really a meal in the typical way that we eat it, but instead it is for both of those things. And uh, so we're thankful for all of it, and uh, that's how I would answer that question. All right, uh, number five here. What does a modern-day Pharisee look like? So these last two questions are big, broad questions. So I'm going to give you big, broad answers uh, and they might not, they're not as specific as some of the others that we have asked. And so you might think, uh, I have some more application to make of these answers, and that's okay. But I wanted to give you my general thoughts about these two. The Pharisees are the group that Jesus tangled with most frequently when he was here on earth. They were the religious leaders of the day. They were the respected moral influencers. And so the question is, if they were the ones Jesus tangled with, how can we be sure we're not this, and how would we identify the same spirit of the Pharisee today? So I'm not going to turn to any one passage, but you'll hear as I go through this the references to the different things that you read about the Pharisees in the New Testament. Pharisees automatically assume that they are right. That is what they do. This is the group who dismisses the blind man. You were born in other sin, and are you teaching us. Who do you think you are? This is the group who dismisses Jesus because he doesn't do like they think he should. It has never occurred to them that they might be wrong. That's the one thing you notice about the Pharisees. They are always just absolutely certain they're right. So a modern day Pharisee would be someone who is closed to criticism, to challenge, or to thought. They're not thinking they're not ready to be questioned. They're not humble and considering whether they have gotten things wrong. Their attitude is, I know I'm right, or maybe I have the truth. This is right. This is me. This is the way it is. Pharisees also develop lots of arbitrary rules, and then they judge people by those rules. So they operate by a creed. It might be an unwritten creed, but it's still a creed. This is work, and this is not work. Okay, remember how they tangled with Jesus about the, the Sabbath based on the definitions of work. You eat with these people, and you don't eat with those people. That's just not done. You fast, and why are you guys not fasting? It doesn't make any sense. This is what you do. In fact, the Pharisees seem to respond to a crisis by making new rules. If there's a problem, we just don't have enough rules. Let's make some more rules, and then we'll know how we can beat this crisis and overcome whatever false teaching or bad practice or whatever it may be. So a modern-day Pharisee 
is someone who judges and condemns other people by rules that are either not in the Word of God or are only tangentially related to the Word of God. So, yes, their definitions of work, tangentially related. God had said, honor the Sabbath day, but certainly not directly related. Instead, they are a set of rules that they created. So, let me just say it this way. When you see extra rules, special rules that are not in Scripture, you might be seeing a Pharisee. Modern-day Pharisees. i got a couple more here. So. Pharisees focus on details and issues rather than God's purposes. So Pharisees care about technical violations. They tithe mint and dill and cumin, and then they miss God's great love for sinners. They're the ones who are mad when Jesus is paying attention to the sinners. So focused on the wrong thing, missing the big thing. For the Pharisee, God is an intellectual riddle to be solved. It's all about the intellect. It's not at all about what God wants, what should I be doing differently, how do I show care for people. So a modern-day Pharisee is someone who specializes in minor things and buries the lead of what God is doing. What's the real thing God wants? The Pharisee can't tell you because he's so focused on the little things. Pharisees are less concerned about sinners than they are their own internal debates. So outreach is never a strong suit with a Pharisee. Now, I understand they do travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and then they make him twice as much a son of hell as themselves. But the point there is, when people are hurting, the Pharisee is questioning whether he is allowed to help, whether this is proper, instead of the natural response of compassion and care. That's the Pharisee problem. Sometimes people are hungry or suffering, and Jesus shows the example of helping them. But a modern-day Pharisee is someone who would love to help, but feels like they can't help people and honor God at the same time. That somehow those are at odds. So, I could probably do more here. There's a lot more meat on that bone, but I'll leave that for the time being. I would just say this before I leave the Pharisee question. We take God's word very seriously, and we try to follow it as best we can. And so it's possible that we're more like the Pharisees than we like to admit. I would just say, if the shoe fits, put it on. It may be that this is hitting us between the eyes because of the way we think. And if so, it's just God's word doing its work of convicting us. The last question I have is, how do we bring the passion back into our worship? I told you these last two are a little broader. Let's go over to Matthew 15. So Jesus is making a different point than the one I'm going to make here, and I'll admit that up front. But I do believe that what he says in the passage from Isaiah he quotes touches on the issue of how to put the passion back into our worship. In Matthew 15 and verse 7, he says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So there can be a disconnect, according to this passage, between our actions, specifically our worship, and our hearts. And when there is, he says, in vain you worship me. Our worship becomes vain. So the question is, how do we bring the passion back into our worship? 
And my answer is right here. We have to engage the heart. The heart. This is not an issue where we can affect the passion in our worship by some sort of outward stimulation. That I can make you feel better things by, you know, we turn the lights down and we get some candles in here and, you know, we start doing some different things with the the screens and I'm going to try to tweak your emotions. Okay? I cannot do that to you. Now, I know uh, we are emotional beings and I know that probably we could do something that would make everybody in the building cry. Okay? That's true. Is that what Jesus is saying? When everybody cries, then you've worshipped. He says, no, your heart is far from me. A heart that is engaged in seeking God. Not just engaged in some kind of emotional experience. Which sometimes it seems to me is sort of uh, what the religious world is seeking when we do a lot of those manipulative techniques. So, uh, Jesus talks about this in Revelation 2.5. He says, I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Talking to the church at Ephesus. If you've lived very long or if you've been married very long, you kind of get the feeling you know what is being said here. You know that feeling where newlyweds get slowly used to married life, kind of get used to each other, and they lapse into a lazy kind of relationship, not paying as much attention to each other, not hanging out together, not focused on each other. And so what begins to happen is sort of an abandoning of the love that you had at first. The same thing happens, Jesus says, with us and our God. We miss the focus on what God has done and how much God loves us and how much we love him. And so we settle for something less. And so our worship can become a dry rehearsal of old stuff instead of something that is vibrant, a celebration of a relationship that continues and is ongoing. Now, I will say this. That's 940. I will say this. Part of this problem is cultural. And I I just need to say this as plainly as I can. Uh, So please, I hope you're not offended by this, but if you are, maybe, I don't know, maybe that's the way it should be. Uh, For some reason, white American Christians in the South, in churches of Christ, so you guys know who I'm talking about. I've been very specific. Have a real hard time showing emotion. In worship, We hardly show any emotion. And I know this as a preacher because I watch all you guys. I see. Okay? And I see the, you know, when you you have no idea what people are thinking because they have the same stoic face as if you had just told them there was a death in the family. You know, it's just the same. And so that, that can be a hindrance in the sense that only if our hearts are no longer in the worship. I feel like it may be hard for us because of the cultural way we've been conditioned. We're going to be absolutely the opposite direction from anything Pentecostal. We don't want any of that. So instead, we we choose Stoicism. And I think that can hamper a display of real, actual emotion. We feel like we've got to kind of get our church face going uh, instead of actually what we're feeling and what we're thinking. So what we need, I know that I've kind of been all over the place here. What we need is our own heart passionately connected to the Lord. Now, I will say this. I love this about this group. It's one of my favorite things about this church. We are passionate in our singing. We're passionate in our praying. I love seeing men who are able to get in front of us, who are willing to smile, willing to cry, willing to express whatever they're feeling in their hearts in real ways. But, of course, that's going to ebb and flow. You know, you can't just flip a switch and turn that on. 
Some days we don't feel so great and we don't feel like worshiping or we don't feel like expressing ourselves in those ways. And that's understandable. But the other side of that is I would also caution, we don't want to judge one another by superficial things. I know I just said some things that were very superficial about everybody's expressions, but that doesn't mean someone's wrong or their heart is not in it. That just may be the way they're comfortable expressing themselves. But I would just say it this way. We bring the passion back into our worship the same way Someone, I would answer someone who asked me, how do I bring the passion back into my marriage? I would say, focus on your mate again instead of yourself. Focus on God instead of yourself. Emphasize the positive. And don't get distracted by the silly, unimportant things. So emphasize the positive of what God has done for you. And don't get discouraged by every little thing that might be getting you down in this moment. Let go of the baggage. You know, after a certain amount of time... In a marriage, we carry a lot of baggage. In our relationship with God, we have a lot of baggage. Let go of that. Instead, pay attention to the other and put your heart into it. That's my advice. Thank you so much for your attention. We'll be dismissed for our classes.